Welcome to Ethically Speaking, a podcast about legal ethics for lawyers. I'm your host, Matthew Kreitzer. Today, we're going back to the basics. Competency. So you're a new lawyer, and you're not necessarily sure how to handle your cases. Perhaps you've decided to start your own law firm fresh out of law school. Or maybe you just got done with your second law firm, and you need to start your own law practice for that work-life balance ratio. How do you learn how to be a lawyer? Do you have a mentor? Do you know what code sections you're supposed to be looking at? You know, these are all questions that new lawyers constantly find themselves asking, and even lawyers who have been around for a while but need to learn a new practice area. So that's why we're going back to the basics today to look at the rule for competency and to talk with another lawyer who's had to address this very issue. So join me today as we explore competency. Competency is located at Rule 1.1, at the very beginning of the Model Rules of Professional Conduct. And it's listed early in the process for a very important reason. Every lawyer, no matter how long they've been practicing, need to be able to provide the skills and knowledge necessary to do the best they can for their client. So Rule 1.1 requires a lawyer to provide the necessary skills and knowledge to give their client a fighting chance. Many new lawyers have often asked me, does that mean that I can't take a case fresh out of law school? Do I need to shadow someone the entire time? The answer to those questions, generally, are no. The comments to Rule 1.1 state that a newly minted lawyer, quote, is allowed to provide these kinds of services so long as they employ education, training, and research. As a new lawyer, you're not expected to know everything. You're simply expected to know how to find the answer. So you can take a case in a field of law that you don't have any experience in, so long as you try and learn what the answer is. Some common examples of how you can find the answer to questions include looking in practice manuals, going to your local law library to pick up CLE materials, or maybe even finding a local mentor who can provide you insight on how they practice the law. Mentors is one of the ways I learned how to practice the law. There are several lawyers throughout the state of Virginia that I turn to when I have legal questions. For example, I will go on listservs to ask questions of other lawyers, or maybe I'll even call up a lawyer out of the blue and say, I've never met you before, but you seem to know what you're doing. Can you provide me some insight? It is that level of humility that a new lawyer needs to have when they are starting their own law practice, or when an older lawyer needs to learn a new practice area that they haven't any experience in. And really, that's all there is to the the rule of competency the willingness to learn, and the willingness to research. And with that said, today's interview is with a lawyer who practices in landlord-tenant law and who has been a solo for less than a year. All right, so my guest today, his name is Rich Herbert. He's located out of Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, Rich? 
Okay, well, I'm a solo practitioner. I, I practice mostly in housing, criminal defense, personal injury, and all of the sort of ancillary areas that you find in between. So various small claims things or restraining orders or clerk hearings. Although I guess that could mean a different thing from state to state. I recently went out on my own about eight months ago, had a <laughs> kind of a rough first year. I worked at a, was essentially something of a small time tort mill that took on basically anything that walked through the door, but really aiming to settle type of law. And I've been out of my own for eight months and I don't think I'm ever going back. Well, why don't you start by telling me a bit about what your first few months were like? You don't make very much money when you're out on your own because no one knows about you and anyone that does know about you, they know that you're out on your own recently. So there's no real reason for them to give you any business, which you can't really blame if you think about it. You know, as a lawyer, you sort of know how dangerous it is to put your case in the wrong hands. So my first few months out of my own was a lot of volunteer work and a lot of studying. I didn't really have time to learn it at the regular pace because I had to pay rent. So I essentially just went online and just consumed case law, consumed secondary sources, and volunteered every week, 16 hours a week, 20 hours a week. And the best way to, to learn is through experience, and that gave me a ton of experience. And then it sort of just took off from there. I, once you please a handful of people, they talk. How long after you started did you start getting these cases? About five or six months is when I really started to take off. About in the last few months, I, I, I'm, I can't even take any more work. There's too much. I have to say no or send it somewhere else, even in my main practice area. And even in situations where I can handle the case relatively quickly, I just have to say no. It's, there's just too much. And I think that's true for a lot of people uh, everywhere. There's more work than lawyers. The problem is uh, hard to really see opportunities. Um, I, I mean, I learned it out of necessity, but yeah, five or six months. I, I should say, though, that in the fourth or fifth month, I made zero dollars for like it was the month of June, zero dollars. <laughs> How are you handling the busy caseload? How are you managing all that? It just cuts into my sleep. I don't sleep. So, you know, maybe one day out of the week, I won't sleep. It's the only way to do it. I have no staff or no support. I've been thinking about hiring someone recently, but if you want to do the cases correctly, you just have to compromise your own health. Um, I want to go back to landlord-tenant stuff. Were you doing that before you opened your own law firm? Yes. I, I, I sort of picked it up on my own. My boss uh, had a friend who had an elderly, elderly couple where it was the friend's parents, and they needed help. There was a, a condemnation on their house. And my boss, who didn't know anything about housing law, well, or, or very much other law, <laughs> for that matter, um, <laughs> He said, hey, just help him out. Go help him out. So I said, all right, fine. I'll go help him out. And I didn't know anything about it, which is clearly malpractice. But I, I picked it up as I, as I went along, and I learned something, which is if you have elderly disabled tenants in Massachusetts, you essentially can't lose the case. And that was true. Yeah. I, we absolutely steamrolled the other side. It wasn't even close. The claims were, you know, the, the claims were all obvious. They were given temporary housing throughout the condemnation process, everything you can imagine. They got a new place, first, last, security paid for them. Really great deal for them. And then after that, I realized, you know, hey, this is, this is something I could do. And it was something that the firm wasn't doing. So I sort of wanted to add on to the firm, which really helped me when I transitioned out because it was a nice little niche for me to practice. Do you find yourself having opposing counsel a lot? So in Massachusetts, um, uh, 
for landlord-tenant law, for the most part, it's something like um, 80% or 85% of landlords are represented and about maybe the flip side, I think it's like 15% of tenants are represented. If I'm landlord side, the opposing side is very rarely represented. And if they are represented, it's, it's usually a headache. You see, in Massachusetts, all of the tenant laws are fee shifting. So if the tenant prevails on a claim, their attorney gets paid by the landlord. So you can have a situation where the landlord doesn't get paid rent for six months, right? They want to evict their tenant for non-payment of rent. So they hire a landlord. So they've already taken two hits, right? They, they didn't get the rent for the six months. They paid an attorney to prosecute the non-payment case. So there's two hits. And then if the tenant prevails on a counterclaim, a conditions-based counterclaim, or any other fee-shifting counterclaim, go into that more if you'd like, then the landlord will have to pay the tenant's attorney, even if the landlord ultimately prevails on the, on the judgment. Wow, that sounds pretty harsh. Yeah. Oh, it's, oh, it's extremely harsh. So for example, if you have a, you know, one, one claim of the tenants for a dollar, kid you not, that triggers fee shifting and $10,000 in rent owed, the tenant will never retain judgment for possession because they won't be able to pay the difference off in the, in the statutory time requirement. <laughs> but the landlord will ultimately have to pay the tenant's attorney um, whatever the fees are. And if they go all the way through trial, you know, we're talking five, $6,000. And if it's a jury trial, they can, I mean, the highest I've ever seen was something like eight, an $80,000 petition. But it's extremely unfair because the, the landlord is, is paying through every orifice. Going back to opposing counsel, you said you've had some difficulties with opposing counsel before. Well, when, when, yeah, whenever, that's the nature of fee-shifting litigation is that um, if an attorney's only getting paid if they win, you'll see people behave a little odd, a little strange, belligerent, and try to intimidate you. In the housing court in particular, it doesn't do a tenant's attorney any good to question a single word their client says. If the, the tenant's attorney never does worse if he believes the fairy tale. The slum, the slumlord fairy tale. I've only really encountered, you know, maybe in a chorus, 300, 300 cases or so, I've only encountered maybe two slumlords. Have you ever had any difficult opposing counsel? You know, the, the biggest difficulty that, uh, that you see is usually people who won't, let a, who won't let a bad case go. They'll take a hopeless case all the way to the end zone, which can be very expensive, um, especially when you turn summary processes, which is what we call the eviction process here, when you turn summary process into civil litigation by way of, for the most part, frivolous litigation, that's how you get the most cantankerous opposing counsel. I have one in particular that I'm dealing with who won't disclose the basis of his demand. So he sends me a number, says, you know, I want $33,000. And my only question to him is, I'm, 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 my client... <laughs> My client is all ears. Just tell me what the $33,000 is for. <laughs> he won't tell me. He says it's, a, it's protected by attorney-client privilege. So uh, if he won't tell me, this is the question I ask him. I said, well, if you won't tell me, <laughs> how are you going to tell the jury, right? Anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you can clearly see my client has suffered, but <laughs> you're just going to have to figure it out yourself. So I don't know. I don't know how he's going to wiggle out of that. If another lawyer wanted to go down your path and start doing landlord-tenant, what are some recommendations you'd have for them? You really don't start on the path doing landlord work because you usually usually start doing tenant work unless you already work for a firm. Landlords, they're somewhat more sophisticated than tenants in that they're, they probably already have a family lawyer or they, they have someone to talk to or they've used a lawyer to, 
purchase the building that they're renting out. They're, they're, already, they're sort of already acquainted with the business, so they tend to not go to new folks. The only time they go to new folks is when they're impressed. So they, they see you in court or they see you at the landlord's organization, that, that type of thing. Uh, so almost invariably, any attorney who barges into the business is going to be a tenant attorney to begin with, which is what I was. I'm, I'm predominantly a landlord attorney now. Would you recommend a new lawyer take all these pro bono cases you were telling me about? Oh, yeah. I mean, in summary process, the first hearing date is the trial date. So you're not going to get any more trial experience than doing landlord-tenant. And it's somewhat more relaxed in that the housing courts tend to be pro se courts. So you can blunder your way through a couple of hearings before you really pick it up, which is what I did. Thank you very much. That's all the questions I had. It was nice speaking with you. All right. Pleasure's all mine. So that's all we have for today. Join me next time on Ethically Speaking when we explore another ethical issue with another lawyer. Thank you.